what are some things that you know now that you didn't know then? Like it could be professionally <laughs> or, per, or personally. Yeah. That. What I know now is I know that culture eats strategy for lunch. If you don't have um, a culture that really aligns with what it is you want to do and work forward, it's going to be very difficult to make progress. And, and I say that like about our organizational culture, like let's say in, in governmental public health or even like to our conversation about kind of, you know, American cultural norms. Culture is hugely important. It facilitates or inhibits us in moving forward, and we pay too little attention to it, um, and we don't really understand how pervasive and how important it is as a factor in our organizations or even in the country. You're listening to the voice of Karen Triweller, who was the former director of the Maternal and Child Health Division for the state of Colorado. In this episode, you will gain insights on how to manage and lead a team to improve the lives of mothers and children, and what you can do to be a part of this public health mission. If you're interested in a career in maternal and child health, or in public health, then stay tuned and listen to her career journey from being a practitioner to becoming a leader in maternal and child health practice. Hello friends, this is the What is Public Health podcast with your host, Dr. Ki Chan. What is public health? To me, public health is the invisible force that keeps you healthy every day, and I bet you didn't even know it. This podcast is your source of the latest trend in public health. Hello, friends. I'm very excited today that I have my good friend and colleague, Karen Trueweiler, who is a master prepared nurse midwife and an experienced public health professional known for leading collaborative efforts to achieve measurable health improvements for women, children, youth, and family. She has over 30 years of work experience in public health, 11 years experience as a Colorado State Maternal Child Health Director. Under her leadership, Colorado experienced a 40% reduction in teen pregnancy rate over five years and a 21% reduction in infant mortality. She has experience in leading statewide non-communicable disease preventive efforts, including Colorado efforts in obesity, chronic disease, injury, suicide, and substance abuse prevention effort. She's received a recognition of distinction for the state maternal child health leadership from the National Association of Maternal Child Health Program, known as MCHIP, and a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Federal Maternal and Child Health Bureau for Excellence in Maternal Child Health in 2017. So listeners, you're in for a great treat to learn (laughs) lessons in leadership in maternal child health from Karen. So Karen, I mean, it's a, you have such a wealth of work experience um, from being a practitioner to professional in public health and also leading the maternal child health unit in Colorado. I think we would love to hear your career journey from being a practitioner to a leader in public health and maternal child health. So Karen, um, can you share with us your journey? Hello, everyone, and Key, it's nice talking with you um, again. Well, um, as, as you said, Key, I started out my career as a certified nurse midwife and then spent about 13 years really in practice in sort of public and private settings. And um, uh, nurse midwifery is, you know, a relatively, I guess, new over the course of the last 30 or 40 years sort of um, profession. And um, nurse midwives really work in a variety of different settings. Um, sometimes people, I think, believe nurse midwives really are 
doing only home births or work only in 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 certain settings, but you can find nurse midwives everywhere, um, including you know delivering in the hospital and partnering with a variety of different healthcare providers or health systems. So um, I had the um, uh, ability to work in several different settings during my clinical career. And it was during that time that I really started to think a little more critically about sort of the work I was doing from the standpoint of kind of seeing over and over sort of the same sorts of issues and problems in the individual patients that I would serve without a whole lot of really good solutions to how to help people solve these dilemmas, a lot of which really were factors that um, were really more, as we say in public health upstream. So people who really had lots of challenges with social determinants of health, you know, poverty, low education, um, you know, housing, homelessness. And then again, seeing really sort of firsthand the impact of adverse childhood experiences on mothers and families. Again, the importance of um, uh, women's health and the importance of really the first three years of life in children's health to set them up for a, a really good health trajectory. And I really didn't feel like working in that setting, I was doing a lot to um, uh, move people forward in terms of their health. So um, at that point, I got interested really in public health and population health and, and then this whole notion about working more upstream to try to address some of these factors that really influence and impact women and families that then would come to see me in the clinic. And again, back to social determinants or ACEs. And was fortunate enough then to move into the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment. And then I spent like about 25 years there working in um, a variety of um, areas, all related to maternal and child health. Since I started my clinical career in women's health, that is um, very important to me. And um, I think that, you know, anyone who works in MCH agrees that children are our future. So when you're looking at, uh, at health habits, health behaviors, the health trajectory, it all starts at the beginning of life, and that all starts with women. So MCH is really key to um, um, a variety of issues and a, and a variety of, uh, of issues around prevention in terms of public health. So I was um, lucky to be able to work um, in that field. And, of course, anyone who's an MCH or knows we have a compelling mission and a really engaged workforce, and that really is kind of icing on the cake for MCH work. So that's sort of how I came to be in the in the in the role that um, I held for quite a long time. Wow, that's great to hear. When you're practicing, you saw that there was a need that was just beyond just providing the clinical care. And listeners out there who may be thinking about that too, like maybe you know they're practicing, they're in the field, and they're maybe have this like other calling, and they're not sure you know go down this different route. What made you decide to do that? Like, did you get additional training and mentorship? Like maybe to help our listener to like make that extra step? It's really a good question. And I think, you know, um, my path was probably a little less traditional in that um, I learned everything that I know about public health outside of the formal academic setting. So I pretty much learned everything kind of on the job. And my um, entry into public health was really through sort of the clinical door. Because at that time, our um, program... 
um, at, in Colorado was still really focused on direct service delivery provision. So we were still funding a lot of prenatal care, family planning related services. So I first came into public health kind of uh, as a, uh, as a, um, through the quality assurance component of making sure that our contractors were providing, you know, um, care that aligned with uh, accepted standards of care. And then it was in, in being in the environment that I really had a lot of opportunities by working with people, mentorship, coaching, um, some kind of almost on the job sort of trainings. We had various classes like epidemiology and and um, other classes that were just offered internally for staff. Because at that time in public health, although it's not 100% foreign even now, most people that worked at the health department really came from the clinical background. We didn't have a lot of people who were professionally or formally trained in public health. And we only recently in Colorado got a school of public health like within the last 10 years. So um, clinicians were very common um, in our department. So we all had to learn um, together really what population health, what public health was really all about. So um, there was a lot of opportunity internally to do that. There's a growing need of public health nurses, public health clinicians, um, having those opportunities more widely available and more advertised, it would uh, incentivize people to consider a public health route in addition to their, in addition to providing clinical service. So that's great to see yeah. here that, you know, back then, but now there may be more formalized titles. And even today, like there's workshops, professional developments, like at conferences. So there's always opportunities to learn public health in any capacity, like whether you're a clinician or a practitioner or you're like a social worker or some, some, some other uh, form of occupation that may be related to public health, but you haven't got some formal training. There's always, there's a lot of workshops and professional training available on-site, online, or even through apprenticeship or mentorships. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's such a good point, Key. There's also a lot, um, and to your point about online, there's a really great like online training program called MCH Navigator that's actually funded by um, the Federal Maternal Child Health Bureau. But for people that might be interested in the field, that is a way to really get um, into learning a lot more about public health and population health through the, the modules and trainings. It's, it's very um, uh, robust, and there's a lot of really good trainings on it. So, you know, you could really access that in your own time and really build your knowledge in the field if you didn't necessarily, you know, if you already had a degree and you didn't want to go back and get a formal public health degree. Or, I mean, sometimes people just can't, you know, given the fact that they have to keep working and, and um, can't always attend school part-time. So, yeah, agree. There's a lot of pathways. Yeah, and we'll share that link to the, M the MCHIB Navigator, right, you said? Yeah, MCH Navigator, right? MCH Navigator. It's a really good one. Yes. Mm -hmm. yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for our listeners um, who are in public health or maybe considering public health, they're maybe familiar with maternal child health, but they may not be as familiar with, like, funding in maternal child health. Like, you know, I think most people know, like, um, there's a public health department and they do public health work. There is actually funding specifically um, to support programming in, for the population of, of mothers and children. Oftentimes they, we call these as titles and it's for Title V and there's this whole histories of titles. So Karen, could you share your knowledge about what does these title means and what does Title V mean for our listeners? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, sure. Um, happy to. And it's like, again, you know, sometimes in our field we have like our jargon or we have our secret code language that, you know, only a few people know. Um, and everyone I know that works in MCH always refers to it as Title V MCH, which is really funny because, you know, it's kind of redundant in some ways. So Title V really refers to Title V of the Social Security Act, and that is the part of the federal law that authorized um, funding initially for maternal and child health services. And this all started like way back in the 1930s when um, things like the Children's Bureau were first developed federally and there was a real um, emphasis by the federal government on the importance of children and children's health to the future. So um, over the years then, um, the funds have always continued to come through that arm, Title V of the Social Security Act. And over the years, you know, some of the components of the funding have morphed and changed. But um, uh, as of today, those funds are um, given to states um, according to formula grants based on your population in your state and um, poverty of women and children in the state. Everyone receives um, an allocation based on the formula. It's not a competition. So all the states and territories have an annual allocation of Title V MCH funding that they use to promote maternal and child health. So um, it comes in the form of what's called a block grant. Um, block grants are sort of federal uh, um, approaches that appropriate funds, but block grants tend to have a lot more flexibility in that there isn't necessarily sort of the rigid requirements that come with most federal funding sources, like when you get your grants from the CDC or even through um, the Health Resources Administration. Um, states um, have to uh, submit an application and follow the guidelines, and then these formula awards come to the state on an annual basis. So it is um, a really nice stream of funding. There are some requirements because, of course, everything has some. But um, to your point, you know, funding is always a challenge, and the maternal and child health um, space really has some pretty steady um, uh, funding that, you know, doesn't sort of make you um, nervous every year about how you're going to fund your activities. So that's, I think, a true benefit of Title V. Just to expand on our understanding of Title V, I know that it's funding that's appropriated for programming in maternal and child health. And could you give some examples of what that is so the general public can understand like, oh, I didn't realize this was funded by Title V and, and what's not, and then how different states uh, get the different funding and just approximately uh, what the, the ranges are. And sure. also it varies from year to year because it's based on your performance uh, measurements yep. from the year before. So that might be something that the audience might want to know so that they have they have reasonable expectations about why certain programs are continuing and why are why some of them are discontinued based on how they performed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, well, it's a great question, Key. And actually, um, your funding allocation is not based on performance, which is unusual because most things are. It, your allocation is really based on your population number, percentage of women and children out of your total population times poverty. And that amount stays consistent regardless of your performance. Now, I know that sounds like pretty weird in these days, which is all like outcomes-based. However, within sort of the guidelines for MCH work, there are, you know, um, uh, measures in place 
that states need to follow. So states have um, some national performance measures that they need to be addressing. States derive sometimes their own state performance measures to address, again, based on a large needs assessment of the NTH population that is mandated by Title V every five years. And states right now are going through that process of doing their five-year needs assessment, and then they'll choose seven to ten state priorities, and then states will also then align their work with five, um, at least five of the 15 national performance measures, and then they have the option to set some state performance measures. So in terms of like examples of what states do, um, one of the things that's a little bit unique about Title V, even though, you know, every state will be working on similar national performance measures is that some states will choose as their state measures, you know, not everyone's working on the same state performance measures, number one, and then um, uh, states have the latitude to choose the strategies, evidence-based or evidence-informed strategies that they want to use to get at the national performance measures. So just to give you an example of what some of that work looks like, you know, their um, national performance measures address uh, breastfeeding and breastfeeding rates, both initiation and duration, um, increasing developmental screening among young children, um, uh, increasing the um, well women um, healthcare visit among women, same thing for adolescent, increasing the adolescent well visit, looking at preventing bullying and um, suicide. And then also um, there's uh, a couple of measures that really address issues that relate to children and youth with special health care needs. Programs that were really specifically targeted to that population were all rolled together in the late 1980s when the MCH block grant was formed out of 20 separate categorical grants all came together in the block grant. So we have a wide responsibility to address the needs of from women to children and youth with social health care needs, and there are um, national and performance measures to guide you, but then states will choose issues based on their own needs assessment. People choose things, you know, like postpartum depression screening and interventions, or states may choose to dig deeper in issues related to adolescent health. Um, women's health, maternal um, um, morbidity and mortality. There's really like a vast array of different activities all related to maternal and child health that the states engage in. And um, it's pretty easy if you're really interested, like if you're from a certain state and you're like, well, what does my state do with their block grant? You can go into the federal system and pull up your state's application very easily, and you can read um, and you can find, again, pretty easily, these applications are long, what your state priorities are and what activities your state is choosing to engage in. So um, there's some similarity, but again, there's a vast array of differences based on the state-specific needs, and that's a real benefit of um, the funding that it is really viewed as a state and federal partnership in addressing the issues that are most important to women and children, both, you know, nationally as well as in your own state. And listeners, if you want to learn more about your state and their priorities, you should definitely check out this um, site to get the reports. And and Karen, let's say um, someone is interested in maybe participating or collaborating. Is there opportunities for like nonprofits or community members to take part in the state initiatives or is this is all <clears throat> state initiated and it 
there's no opportunities for, for outside partnership. Just curious. Um, no, partnership is really encouraged and states have a variety of partners. I mean, when you um, are, are putting together your application, you're really um, talking about highlighting all the partnerships, which are vast and many. And again, in all arenas, so not just the governmental arena, most Title V state programs also provide funding to local public health programs to advance their MCH goals. And again, many nonprofits are involved, many national organizations, as well as state organizations, again, are in partnership. Lots of partnership with um, Medicaid, state Medicaid agencies, other health care authorities and agencies are occurring under Title V, and then uh, partnerships with consumers and families who come together to really inform the direction of um, the Title V block grant, and then who take active part in the activities that a state chooses to move ahead, let's say, uh, um, an important health issue. Well, there's so much opportunities now that um, the listeners could be involved with and to learn more about how to get involved in maternal child health in your state. So, Karen, yep. in your many years of as a leader in maternal child health in Colorado, can you share like one really tough decision you had to make? And then looking back now, like what would you tell your earlier self at that point? Like, was it the right thing to do or not? And from that experience, like, are there lessons learned that you can share with leaders and future leaders in maternal child health in these tough decision-making situations? Yeah, it's a great question, Key. And I think, like, you know, you, you can't spend a, a, as much time, really, in your field without sort of encountering these sorts of things. And a lot of times you don't necessarily think back about it. But uh, So I like the question a lot. Um, so, of course, I had many, but um, I kind of settled on... Um, uh, uh, sort of one. Um, when I came into the field and was learning about public health, I was really struck by the people that worked, particularly in MCH, who were definitely, you know, mission-driven. They really saw the purpose in the work, and they were really idealistic, like they wanted to help, and they were very passionate about the work. Um, where I saw some challenge was that while we all were very interested and engaged and committed, there seemed to be some difficulty in actually moving the work forward, kind of an action orientation, to actually be able to say, you know, like down the road, well, here's how we improved maternal and child health in our state, or here's how women and children are better off because of the work that we're doing here today in our state. That seemed to be um, a lot more difficult to get people sort of past that phase of talking about how much they like the work and to actually doing the work and then organizing the work so that, you know, you had a clear path forward. Um, work in public health is always challenging because, you know, if you do something right, you, you a lot of times you don't see the result for like 10 to 20 years down the road. But again, you know, over the course of recent years, we've talked a lot about, you know, how we kind of scope our our processes, how we look at short-term and intermediate outcomes that will sort of lead us on the way to larger population health improvements, particularly in MCH. So um, this is really important to me, and I kind of put in place these sorts of um, components to our MCH program um, a, a bit before it became more common, 
you know, um, as it is now. It's, it's, you know, everyone's talking about outcomes and results, but in those days, people didn't. So um, it was kind of a tough road to do that because it was really like out of the norm. You know, there really wasn't a lot of calls for people to really do anything. And um, in asking people to really focus more on the work itself, which, you know, also kind of led to a focus on operations and management, which in public health is is not um, a a norm (laughs) either. So um, I have to say it was kind of a lonely road to do that. And um, if you choose a path that is less traveled, and again, I spent my whole career in governmental public health, and government is in love with the status quo. So anytime you chart a path that is not in alignment with the status quo, it's a hard path, right? Because all the systems in government really converge to keep you doing what you've always done. It's very difficult to surmount that. But, um, you know, in terms of, you know, sort of how to strike out, I think it's important that you occupy, like, a good place in your organization. And when I say that, I mean that you have to have some power and influence in order to be able to kind of walk that different path and get the support, you know, from your colleagues as well as your, I always call them my uppers, um, who will um, allow you to sort of move ahead in a different way. And um, I I think you do that in a really old-fashioned way. You just have to be someone who is conscientious and someone who is consistent and can be counted on. So once you establish that trust, once you are always there when people need something and you're doing the work and you're doing the work well, then you really generate a lot of latitude to be able to open things up more for innovation or perhaps again, moving down or doing things in that different way um, based on, um, you know, uh, uh, what seems reasonable and right. Um, So that being said, I can't say that it was like an easy path. Um, It became easier when the Maternal and Child Health Bureau changed their guidelines to be very similar to what I was trying to do in our state. So that was a real validation. But um, in looking back, I mean, I think it was totally the right thing to do, but it wasn't always easy to keep doing it, particularly in the early days when I felt like, you know, I had resistance sort of from everywhere, but um, I just kind of kept plowing ahead. Well, you know, Karen, as the saying goes, change is hard, right? And so that's what you're up against is just resistance. Just curious, like you you mentioned that people that were working with you, they were passionate about their work, but they weren't focused on the outcome. And so I'm just curious, like, what was it that led to that? Was it that they didn't know the process to get to the outcome? Or was it just they didn't prioritize? They just had too many projects? I'm just curious, like, what was the resistance? Were you able to survey that? And and what strategy did you do? I know that you said to have um, to have influence and that you and then also the national guidelines changed too, but on a on a person to person and, and mm-hmm. like real world tips, like like what was going on actually? Like I'm just curious. You know, um and one of the things that I think I really learned, like I, I know you're gonna ask me about this later, but I'll just jump into it right now. Um, that I really didn't quite understand like as well as I understand it now is really the role that organizational culture plays in your work. And while there are just so many things about the culture of public health that are great, 
There are also some norms about public health culture that are really um, kind of get in the way of an action orientation. So I think to your question, like why was it so difficult? It was difficult because it was different and no one else was being asked to do their work differently except for the people that were in the MSH program. So, you know, when you're looking, when you work in a status quo organization, people are looking across and like, well, they don't have to do that. And I also will say as a subset that for a long time, it was enough to be passionate and agreeable and to talk a good line about MCH, but it was fine never to do anything about MCH. And I changed that. So it wasn't enough just to be committed. You had to act on your commitment. And then to your point, Key, I think, you know, it kind of gets into this whole area of what um, uh, I call it, it, well, not me, but the the uh, De Beaumont strategic, Eight Strategic Skills for Public Health, which I just love, uh, resource management, which is how do you manage people and money to do your work? And um, I think in, in our field, you know, we have a lot of people that either came in as clinicians or came in because they loved the work, but they really didn't have those um, strategic skills. And it's a great list of eight, strategic thinking being another one. And um, people didn't teach this. Um, it, you didn't see it modeled, really, in, in um, our public health settings. So, you know, if you look to business models, I mean, of course people learn how to both inspire people but also to get things done. And we could inspire people, and it was enough to be inspired, but really people didn't necessarily have the skills to, um, to, to really uh, um, take action. You know, we really didn't know how to implement. At the time, you know, it would be very common to do a needs assessment, put it on the shelf, write a plan that you never implement. And that was, like, very common and okay, and no one ever questioned that. So when you start to jump in there and you start to question all these things, again, you know, you're really bucking the cultural norms. I didn't really realize that's what I was doing. Um, but, you know, now I would do that differently in really starting to address culture and then really look at how do you start to put in place first cultural norms change, which, again, isn't easy either, but it does make it easier to sort of start there and then, you know, from that, from a clear mission and vision, from clear values, from a clear set of strategic priorities and expectations, people have a better understanding about how it all fits together. I kind of just jumped into the middle of it and then just said, well, this is the way we're going to do it. And, um, you know, I, I needed to have step back and fill in sort of those other components that were clear in my mind, but they weren't clear to my colleagues or even to my own um, Uppers. I think it gives a broader picture for people working in maternal health who are maybe getting into this area. And how do you move the needle, right, from your passion yep. to actually it being purposeful work being implemented? Because we could be very passionate about our idea, you know, be boots on the ground, actually doing the work, and then mm-hmm. and not just only doing the work, but sometimes I think in public health, at least when I teach my uh, when I'm teaching my courses, the students think I'm just I, I turn in my paper. Doesn't effort count? Well, effort counts. That's work. Mm-hmm. If the point is to get an A, you you need to meet those expectations, and then there's rubrics and there's evaluations and there's performance measurements. I think it, having people understand that it's not just 
you know, having a passion, being interested, but it's actually what is the impact being made? Because you can put a lot of effort and there's no impact being made. Then you have to reevaluate where you're putting your effort in the activities that you're supposed to in order to make the impact. Yeah. yeah. And so, it, you know, and sometimes it's about uh, talking to her ego, thinking like, okay, maybe, you know, I'm passionate about this, but maybe this is not the priority. Maybe I need to yeah. prioritize certain, t- certain tasks to make that impact. And I think it's, yeah. I think it's a challenge for everyone where he's just not interested in the work. And that's why mm-hmm. it just took forever to move. But no, it's, it's almost that they were too interested in the work. Yep. That, yeah. It was it was a hard mind shift for them to think about that maybe they have to change tasks in order to get to from point A to point B. <laughs> yeah, that's such a great point. And I think that really is like, I, I think you really sort of hit the nail on the head key. I mean, it, it, it was definitely a need to change to um, uh, thinking a little bit differently about it and then doing things a little bit differently. And also, you know, kind of at that same time, we were in the process of doing, uh, when we started, we were doing our needs assessment and then we're really, we're looking critically to your point about what are we going to continue doing and what are we going to stop doing? And we stopped doing things, which again is not very common. You know, it's like I used to say, well, you got to say no to say yes. So I was really just like a big believer in the word no, which you don't hear in public health that often. So, um, you know, it was like, well, somebody else can take this effort over or we're seeing that this effort is not working, so we got to switch. So then, you know, we sort of had a a sort of a concomitant um, retraining of staff who had maybe been working in one area that we weren't going to be doing anymore, and then we had to shift them to another area. And that, you know, is very tough on people who become fearful about their job and then, like, are are worried they won't be able to learn, but they can, um, which took a lot of support. And it did work out really pretty much across the board. But again, it was a very different way to do things that um, kind of was, you know, definitely um, out of the out of the norm or status quo. These are definitely great lessons learned from listening to your story, like about understanding people's motives or understand what motivates them, uh, what stories that they have in their heads. Like, is I'm passionate about it. I don't like this change, but. But then understanding if those are what is keeping them resistant to change is to give them space, um, you know, provide training or hear them out saying that, no, you can do it, right? It sounds to me there was a lot Mm -hmm. of prep talk (laughs) as being a leader in MCH and that maybe that will also can help motivate them. And, you know, just to continue on our discussion about MCH is still some pressing issues, right, in MCH that we're still dealing with. And and why is that, that they still remain unresolved? And and what are some of those issues? And is there something that the general public can do about that. For example, we could develop these programs, but if no one participates them, then that's not useful then. So love to hear what are those issues that still remain. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, you know, um, uh, you, you can, uh, I think, organize a lot of them under sort of a larger category of of a continued struggle really to realize health equity across all populations. Um, you know, for every performance measure, pretty much that we have um, in maternal and child health, there are groups of people whose health outcomes are just not similar to other groups of people. And that can be differing health outcomes, you know, by income, by race, ethnicity, by rural versus urban, many, many different factors that kind of come into play whereby because of certain conditions that really are not anyone's 
there's not a lot you can do about these conditions, you know, where you live, what your race ethnicity is, you know, the health outcomes that are associated with many of our very important MSH issues are just different or not as robust as they are for, let's say, more affluent populations. And um, I think we still continue to struggle in our field. We know the data now pretty well. I mean, we can show you how the data stratifies out for most health conditions. But again, I think, you know, we are um, talking a lot about the importance of, of equalizing, uh, uh, of equitable um, um, health for all populations. But again, I think we're struggling a little bit about what does it mean to take action to make that happen? And um, at least I know in, in our um, state group, we kind of got kind of stuck around sort of the understanding the issue part of it for quite a while. And then really, you know, are still having trouble sort of driving it forward into some sort of tangible interventions that are really going to start to show some differences um, in health outcomes across all populations. The other thing I was kind of thinking about, you know, this issue uh, key, and again, sort of everything I've kind of learned about culture when we were talking about before, um, I think some of this also really drives back into kind of some American cultural norms. You know, in our country, um, our country is, is very much invested and founded upon the rights of the individual um, kind of versus sort of a more communitarian orientation that you might see in some other countries. So what we have is that people really, um, you know, are looking at how things impact them or their family individually, but less so really taking that bigger picture that, you know, we have to really all move forward and survive together as a group, as a community, as a nation, as a population. And that sometimes really requires us to forego sometimes what might be 100% best for us as individuals and really promote what might be good for, you know, the community or kind of the greater good. And I think there's a lot of tension with that in our culture um, in terms of, you know, particularly in public health, how do you sort of um, uh, promote kind of this notion of the common good um, within, you know, sort of what are the accepted standards of American behavior. And you see that, I think, in a lot of areas. Like, you see that in immunizations. You know, there's so much vaccine hesitancy now. But, again, that's like, I don't want my child to have an immunization, but then that has, like, such incredible impact for children who can't be immunized or for others in the community. Same issues around, you know, um, black informal mortality and the just, uh, rising rates of, of infant mortality within the African-American population, but also within um, African-American women. And then how do you help people understand that, you know, um, that issue is um, an issue that we all need to be concerned about in our population? Because if one of us is diminished, then we're all diminished. So um, kind of to your question about, well, what do you do about it, um, I, that is like a great question. I think it's hard, but uh, I do think that um, over the course maybe of the last five years, I think public health has been doing a lot better job around um, uh, uh, utilization of data. You know, we've always been pretty good about data, I think, collection 
uh, interpretation and analysis, but now I think we're doing a better job of communicating the data in a way that is compelling, that is a little less complex, and that helps people kind of see what's happening and kind of using um, um, messaging, including social media, in a way that really sort of harnesses people's interest in sort of the community at large. And um, also like, you know, providing like stories or examples from other places in the world. You know, there's lots of interest in the educational system in the Scandinavian countries or the childcare setup, you know, in some European countries, which is a little bit more um, available and across the board. And sort of like harnessing that interest to our own messaging to help kind of create more of that kind of um, uh, pe for people to embrace that common good sort of notion about how we have to do some things so that everybody moves forward. Yeah, I do like that image that, you know, when we are stronger together, you know, our community becomes strong. When one falls, like we all fall. And I think it's a new image for people to think that way because I think, like you said, in our society, we're driven to think more individualistic, that, mm -hmm. um, which is good, right, at some point. But yeah. then yeah. I think we lose sight to the bigger picture that you don't live in a silo, you live in a community. Mm -hmm. And what you do impacts other. And like you said about the vaccine, like in order for vaccines to work, you need everyone to be vaccinated. So there's herd immunity. Right. When half the people are immunized and half of them aren't, then that doesn't work anymore. Still is going to rise. So even those that were immunized can be impacted because then there right. could be a, a new mutation of the strain. And so I think that's the part that people is, is don't see is that in order for benefits for you, like you have to participate into the community. Um, right. In order to get that right. benefit. Yeah. yeah, I think that's like a, such a, a great um, summary. I also think that sometimes that's why um, it sort of like t sort of tackling these issues sometimes they're a little bit more successful when they're attacked kind of at the local level or the community level, you know, where you can kind of do those grassroots efforts that kind of break down, you know, those silos and people can really come together a little bit more easily. Whereas at the state level, you know, um, state level sort of interventions are usually much more removed from the community and people's actual lives. So this issue might be one that is sort of best tackled really at the community or local level. And then we, like who are used to working at the state or federal level, learn from those efforts. And then we can put into place things that support that, like policy changes or legislation or other sorts of systems change initiatives that take work at maybe higher levels of government to sort of smooth the road so things can work out better at the community level. Yeah, and at a community level, that means you listeners, <laughs> that you can engage <laughs> and you could be the champion. And, and you're thinking, well, how do I do that? Like, do I, I'm, I don't work at the state level or I'm not part of the local public health department, but you can form your own community group, like, not, like neighborhood block clubs. Like watching mm -hmm. each other, um, the town hall meeting. Right. You can form a community at. You can rent a space for free at the public library um, for mm -hmm. gatherings to talk about issues that are important to you. About like why do you have a health equity issue? Like how? And then if people have common questions about um, health insurance or health equity or how to address health disparity, you know, you could be that person to initiate that conversation. It could be as right. simple as just 
beginning with a book club, you know? And so I think mm-hmm. that's what we mean by so a lot of these efforts um, can start locally. And that's you listeners that you're actually have the power to make change in your local community. And from that local community, it can have a ripple effect to other communities, neighboring communities, and it can even have a ripple effect upwards to the state level. <laughs> Given that, you know, there's all these things that, We've learned from you, Karen. What are some things that you know now that you didn't know then? Like it could be professionally <laughs> or, per, or personally. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, like um, I was taking some notes for this. And the, the one thing I put down was that what I know now is I know that culture eats strategy for lunch. That oh. if you don't have um, a culture that really aligns with what it is you want to do and work forward, it's going to be very difficult to make progress. And, and I say that like about our organizational culture, like let's say in, in governmental public health or even like to our conversation about kind of, you know, American cultural norms. Culture is hugely important. It facilitates or inhibits us in moving forward, and we pay too little attention to it. Um, and we don't really understand how pervasive and how important it is as a factor in our organizations or even in the country. Um, And um, the other thing I think I've learned is that uh, management is really important. It's not a dirty word because sometimes in public health, management, anytime management is mentioned, it's always inferred to mean micromanagement, which is always bad. And um, I don't even think, like, micromanagement is always bad. Um, Management is a process to organize things and get them done, and it is hugely important if you want to get results and outcomes. So being a little more, um, uh, developing a little more expertise in in management as well as leadership, both are important, um, I think is is something that uh, I really worked hard to develop. And I also think that that's going to remove some of the barriers that people feel about, well, how am I supposed to actually do this work when I don't really know how to organize, strategically think it through, put together, you know, good action plans, look at the literature to see what strategies are successful, put them in place, test them out, change them when they don't work, and kind of keep pushing forward. So I think management is is really um, a good thing. And I think that that really does allow you to be more of a risk taker or an innovator in public health when you have good logistical processes in place that you can test out new ideas and see if they work or not. And you mentioned about organizational culture. As you had said, that plays a significant role in how you strategize um, your organization to move forward. As someone coming in at an entry level, you know, they can't really change culture. I mean, they have to learn to adapt to it. But as a leader, like where you were at, Karen, and for other members who are listening, who are maybe transitioning to a leadership position, you you can play a role in maybe shifting, not not so much of 180 degrees change in organizational mm-hmm. culture, but you could shift the organizational culture. Like, has that been done during your time? And I'm just curious, like, what were some strategies to do so? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a really good question. And I think, um, I think it's really, it, it's a great point because you're right. You can do it at, at various different points in the organization. I mean, kind of waiting to sort of change like organizational culture from the very top down is probably, you know, going to be a long wait. 
Um, a, a lot of which is because of the way governmental public health is set up. You know, there's frequent leadership changes, and then a lot of people, you know, in top jobs are appointed um, as, a, as opposed to, um, uh, you, you know, they're not there for long periods of time. So that can make it a little bit harder, although some people are great, but other people, you know, are, are there for a limited amount of time, and they themselves don't have a great understanding maybe about, uh, organizational culture. But I think there's a lot that you can do in the group in which you work. You know, e- if you're a team member, or uh, and this could be like on a project team or a program team or a grant team, or it could be like maybe you're on a bureau leadership team or what have you. You know, you, you can as a group decide, we'd like to sort of set some or put in place some, let's say, different, new, change, attitudes, beliefs, norms, mores that guide our work. And I think that even when you might be in a larger environment that might not 100% support those, because so much of what we do in governmental public health is, is you know, still unfortunately a little siloed, you know, you, you usually work within, you know, kind of your work group. And um, it's totally possible to put those sorts of things in place for your work group. And I think we did it um, in our work group. And again, um, to your earlier point, change really is hard, and change takes a lot longer than you ever think it will. And it takes a lot of support long beyond which you think the change should be in place. And I think that's another sort of like lesson that I learned where I'm like, well, surely by now, you know, it's totally understandable. Everybody knows. But I found that, you know, Several years after we kind of made some of these changes, I was still like kind of going back to my talking points. Here's why we want to look at things in this way, kind of listing them all off, because again, there's something about like a repetitive message that's really important for people to be able to hear, because everyone's at a different point in their head about, you know, either understanding it or maybe they're past the initial resistance and now they just want to learn more. So hearing it over and over and over again kind of gives makes it real. And, you know, uh, an, another thing is that because in, in uh, governmental public health, we're used to having um, a fair amount of change. You know, we might get new people into top positions or sometimes, you know, at least in state health, we have a, an election. We get a new governor, then they change out everyone that's at high-level positions in the executive branch organizations, and usually people come in with their own agenda. So people are used to getting a whole new agenda, you know, sometimes every four years, and people are a little skeptical that it's really going to happen, so they tend to just wait it out, you know. We be here before you come, and we be here when you go kind of thing. So, you know, um, you really have to demonstrate that you're in it for the long haul and that you're going to continue to sort of, you know, move things ahead um, under the expectations that you've set and support people in doing that so they can see that, yes, it's really going to happen. Because for a lot of changes, they just know if they wait it out, it'll never, it'll never occur. So you're, you're also like kind of, you know, that's a, a barrier to you, that people are skeptical that change is really ever going to be fully realized, and many times they're right. Thank you for sharing that, Karen. And that's very encouraging um, to our listener that you, even though organizational culture at a high level, at the leadership level, may be hard to change, but, you know, you can have your own culture within your work groups, 
within your community, within mm-hmm. your MCH group. And so that motivates people that you have, you are in power to create your own culture you know, that's based on your value, share values, norms, and beliefs, and what's important. So that's mm-hmm. very encouraging to know that. Karen, like during your many years as Colorado State Maternal Child Health Director, from overseeing all your employees and partnerships, I would love for you to just share with us, like, what are still are some professional development skills that you see that you see are still in need? Uh, in MCH or in public health in general. And this may help our listeners to consider in upskilling or reskilling these subjects. Mm -hmm. I do think that um, it really is uh, that there's several um, uh, areas that really relate back to those kind of eight strategic skills for public health, um, many of which really are focused on um, implementation in evaluation, but I think we're pretty good in public health now about assessment and um, uh, data use. Uh, that I think ha- there's been a lot of emphasis on that for um, many years, and then I think we're also getting pretty good at planning, at really looking at the data, figuring out you know sort of where the issues are, what needs to to be done. Um, and I think a little bit harder than about really identifying strategies, breaking them down into action steps, and then actually implementing um, the plan, and then being able to sort of, you know, course correct when things aren't going well. That's an area, implementation in general, I think, that um, uh, people can continue to build skill. Um, there's lots of work going on around quality improvement, which I think is great about really looking at the work that you're doing, you know, what's going well, what isn't, and then be a little quicker to course correct. Sometimes we leave things, we made a plan, you know, five years ago, but we're not going to change one thing about it. You know, I think we need to be more nimble to get in there, you know, to course correct quickly in, in order to keep things moving forward and then really monitoring our progress, kind of this whole area of performance management that people are getting into because you've got to have a plan if you apply for accreditation, either at the state or local level. But sort of performance management, how are people doing? What are the results of our efforts starting to look like? How do we course correct? And then how do we kind of keep everybody kind of on the same page, sort of marching forward kind of under the mission and vision? And then I think, again, resource management, helping people really learn how to be very effective in managing um, uh, people and in managing the money. Um, there's a real dearth of, ta- of skill in financial management, particularly in people that you know are, are, are working on the program side that tends to be parceled out to people that work on the financial side. But um, every program person should understand money and how much things cost and return on investment. And again, that's an area that um, still really, I think, begs for more attention. Yeah. And that brings up how we met, Karen, was that we did a workshop together (laughs) (laughs) on financial management. (laughs) So it was a couple years ago that MCHIP asked us to create a workshop about moving the needle in MCH 3.0. I remember you came that really savvy title and let's focus (laughs) on financial management. And it was like a half a day course where we talked about um, time value of money, um, return on investment, and actually 
teaching the calculation and that it's not just on the calculations, but it's about how to tell the story with the numbers. And I think mm-hmm. really emphasizing that it's not just about the numbers, it's about using the numbers to prove your point that you are making impact and then leading to the discussion about social return on investment, which is SROI, and which I think is much more representative of what we do in public health is that mm-hmm. we do what we do has a societal benefit. Um, but yep. yeah, that's a great plug about our workshop, which um, uh-huh. I'd love to do another one with you Karen <laughs> just let me know we when you have time <laughs> yes <laughs> actually we should um we should uh, do a survey poll on our podcast to see who would be interested <laughs> in participating exactly. in this <laughs> yeah. exactly yeah and I love the fact that you um shared about the professional development about course correcting and it just reminded me of an image that we should have like our own GPS, like our own Google map, mm-hmm. that the minute mm-hmm. that we miss a turn, that we can turn back and you have to course correct really quickly to get from A to B. You know, it might be a, a little scenic route or a different route, but you can get from point A to point B. And, you know, in Google Maps, it gives you all the different routes, right? It's almost right. like that that's, you can take. That you can take, which is equivalent mm-hmm. to different strategies, right? Like, yeah. as long as you know, like, from point A to point B, you know, if you take this route, you know, what are some of the benefits and what are the pros and cons, right? It might take longer, but you might get a better view. This one um, can, it's a straight shot, but then, you know, it, you might miss certain views and, or you can take the long route, a shorter route, well, a bus route, mm-hmm. <laughs> so, or different yeah. modes of transportation. So I like your, and now I like your point about course correcting, because I think uh-huh. we as individuals are very used of having an like external thing helping us course course correct right Mm -hmm. but we need to embrace the course correcting within ourselves yeah or within our teams because i think you know like (laughs) if you're looking sort of at performance management and you've got because i always think you know sort of like the power of the collective brain you know where where you have people coming together to really have good conversations about the work we have a lot of conversations, but a lot of times it's not necessarily about the work or how we're trying to move it ahead. I think that can be a really great way to surface, you know, new ideas or um, ways of, you know, following that different route that you might not have thought of yourself. But again, a lot of times, you know, we're not really harnessing, you know, like all of the sort of people talent that we have. And having them really look at, okay, here's what we chose to do. Here's the plan we put in place. Here's how it's been going. Let's think this through, you know. Um, and, again, I think, you know, that gets back to some of our reticence in our systems to sort of be able to have kind of those honest conversations about work. And sometimes people aren't ready to hear what they perceive as criticisms, but they're actually, you know, conversations about how to move the work forward so that we can do our best for the populations that we serve. So, again, in our management roles, we have to create the psychological safety and the ability to have critical conversations where people can keep it about the work and and not personalize the comments or internalize those. And this is another, I think, area of management that is challenging for us in public health. Karen, you gave us so many great lessons and advice throughout this interview. I really appreciate your honest uh, reflection and sharing about your time as a leadership and 
how you um, navigate through those challenges. So thank you so much for sharing all these lessons learned. And we would love to learn, like, what are you up to now, now that you've retired as the director of the Maternal Child Health in, in Colorado? Yeah, well, um, I, I um, left the, my position in Colorado in the middle of 2017 and then um, started a very small, small, small um, consulting firm, public health consulting firm called Total Population Health. And um, in general, uh, you know, the, the approach with this business is kind of taking the sort of boots on the ground experience. Um, I have a partner that does this work with me. We've both worked in governmental public health for a long time. And again, you know, feel like we learned all the lessons about sort of how to work in governmental public health um, over many years. And there's still many people out there that are kind of, you know, facing the same sorts of facilitators and barriers that we faced. So sometimes, you know, it's like really helpful to be able to talk and work with someone who's done it before, who's been through it, who understands the nuances that, you know, sometimes aren't always apparent, um, either when you're in the system or um, it's really nice to be able to see, oh, it's like that in, in more than just my setting. So really taking that real-world experience and using it to help people sort of throughout the sort of public health process, you know, some assessment or data work, planning, strategic planning, um, resource development, really looking at helping people do a better job with sort of people management or financial management or, you know, really how to put together good implementation plans or performance management plans or systems in place so that they can really be moving that work forward and getting those results and outcomes. Again, you know, it's, it's what we, it's what the people that we serve deserve. We're here to improve health. So, you know, that we really need to deliver on that, um, on that charge. Well, listeners, if you're interested in getting consultation in the area of public health and learning and working with a leader in public health, definitely connect with Karen. I'll post up her website and her contact information so you can connect with her. You've been in governmental public health and also a practitioner. And so like for many folks out there who may be interested in transitioning or have their own nonprofit or community clinic that's interested in working with the government or playing a role in public health, like I think it would be a great opportunity to connect with you and your partner um, in your uh, consulting business to learn like what are pathways to do that and how to strategize um, to sure. optimize those plans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you know, as we're coming to a close, like what is one golden nugget of advice that you can live of our listeners? Um, you know, I'm going to say um, to keep in mind both aspirations and operations that, you know, the fact that we have, uh, we work in a mission driven field, we uh, have, we're working on important issues that impact um, people uh, greatly throughout the course of their lives. But we also have to have the operations in place to be able to deliver on our charge to really improve maternal child health. So we have to keep both aspirations and operations in mind. Oh, I love that. Thank you so much, Karen. And if listeners you want- thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. And you know, if listeners want to reach out to you, like what's the best way? Um, you know, probably by email. My email is Karen at totalpopulationhealth.com, and that's all one word, no caps. So that's a, a long uh, 
typing task and um, oftentimes, you know, typos that <laughs> get in the way. And then our website is totalpopulationhealth.com. So thanks, Key. It's really been fun talking with you. And um, yeah, if anyone is interested in talking more, just reach out. Well, thank you so much, Karen. And thank you listeners for joining us today. Great. Thanks. Bye-bye. If you got questions about any of the episodes, feel free to reach out to me directly. And while you're there at it, please subscribe to the podcast and share the episode that you felt connected with so that we could be a part of this collective invisible force called public health. Thanks.